I'm reluctant to break the silence. <clears throat> A lot is, uh, has already been said. And <clears throat> I've been um, so inspired by the uh, previous talks, both from Gil and Nikki, particularly the last uh, two talks. And part of this was because what they were sharing was less about what they were saying. It was more how they were embodying what they were both speaking about. And so tonight, I am speaking with no adornment, no notes, no sense of what necessarily is going to happen next. So why am I doing this? I'm doing it because I want to embody the sense of trusting, a sense of a certainty that what's needed is already here. And so how do we do this? How do I do this in any given moment? Well, it's what we've all been practicing together. First thing is you have to show up. You have to be here. And when you show up with this gentle and patient approach, then you bring in mindfulness, some awareness, and presence of each moment as it's unfolding. And as you're with this steady flow of experience, there develops concentration, a steadiness or stability that I know you all know. And the question was asked, why or what's next or why do we practice, so what? And it's from this showing up with the presence and the steadiness of the mind that wisdom starts to blossom, starts to bloom. And so what is wisdom? That's what I want to speak a little bit about tonight. And what I can tell you from my own experience and from the experience of so many other beings that have come before me, wisdom is not something to be gained. It's not something that you can acquire. It's something that you can align with, something that manifests in a moment. 
Suzuki Roshi had a wonderful quote. He said, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened people. There is only enlightened activity. And what he's pointing at is this quality of the heart and mind. It's a quality that is steadfast, that's certain. Or the image that we've been using throughout this retreat, rooted. It's really rooted right here. And why is this so important? What is it about this rootedness that is so transformative? In my own experience, it's a sense of coming home, being comfortable in your own skin. And when you are comfortable in your own skin, when you have that certainty, that steadfastness, then there is a knowing that nothing more is needed, that each moment is already complete in and of itself. Many years ago, I was living and studying in Asia. And I was, at the time, I was a student. And I was studying uh, Chinese. And as I was learning the language, there are different forms of characters. Some of them are pictographs. They actually depict what they are representing. Some of them are ideographs. That is that they're actually bringing up what the idea is or what the concept is that's represented in this character. And there was one character that struck me when I first learned it. And it was the character to return, to come home. And the character in Chinese is actually, it's two boxes. It's one box and then another small box inside. It's pronounced Hui. And this character, its original form, was actually a picture. And it was one who was traveling down a mountainside in this concentric circles, spiraling in, coming back to the very center, coming home. And it was eventually simplified for writing to be these two boxes, but its original depiction was this spiraling into the center to return to a place of balance. And that's what we're all doing here, again and again, with each moment.
we're finding our own way to come home, to be fully in this moment and to trust the unfolding of the moment so that whatever is needed will naturally arise. This is the wisdom. It's a function, as I was saying, of this steadiness, this open-heartedness, this wholehearted presence. So what does this mean for us as practitioners? Well, it's about this point in the retreat that we can start to feel some of that wavering, some uncertainty. How is it that I'm going to bring this back into my life? As though life is some big thing that's out there and what's happening in here is somehow separate. We might feel just a sense of hesitancy about what is it that I've really understood? What is it that we've been doing? What is it that I know? And what I would suggest is that this whole practice is not about some attainment. It's not about some collection of experiences that if I just have enough and string them together, then eventually there's some end point that's called awakening, understanding, enlightenment, whatever it might be. Rather, it's what you have understood and how it shows up in the way that you live. This is the true litmus test of practice. From what you have directly experienced, directly touched in these days, how does that inform how you live? This is the heartwood of practice. The Tibetans like to say that it's as close as the eyelid, and yet we miss it. It's so obvious, and yet so profound. So as you sense into the truth of your own practice, your own understanding, see if you can sense what has so beautifully already been articulated. You're simply shining the hydrant, as Gil said. The reflection becomes that much more clear. So you see your own smiling face in the gleaming hydrant. 
or as Nikki so beautifully articulated last night with equanimity. You stand in the middle of it all with a smile. And it's this understanding that then becomes unshakable. It becomes portable, not dependent on any conditions. It becomes accessible. And this practice is a bit of a paradox. You may have noticed this because there's this sense of doing, but we're not doing, right? So we all arrived, we came here, we have this sincere intention to really be present with what's happening, to let it unfold as it is. But then the great paradox is that we're not actually doing anything. We're just meeting an experience moment to moment. And within the Buddhist teachings, there's what is the eight called the Eightfold Path. And if you look at the Eightfold Path, the first two steps on the path are view and intention. And these are sometimes talked, as, talked about as the wisdom components the path. And then the next three are considered to be the ethical parts of the practice. So this is how we actually manifest the view, what we've understood. We are putting it into practice. It becomes how we live in the world. So this is our speech, our action, our livelihood. And then the last three factors of the path, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, these are said to be the mental trainings or the trainings of the heart and the mind, sometimes referred to as the concentration portion samadhi. What's interesting about this is that the wisdom comes at the beginning and that the mental training are the last three factors, which is a little confusing because what I started with is that when we are actually here with our experience, we show up, there's that effort to actually be here. And then we're aware. And from that awareness, there's the stability. Then the wisdom arises. 
and yet the three factors are at the end. Wisdom isn't the last factor, it starts at the beginning. So why? Why is that? When we start meditating, when we begin our practice, we have an idea about what it is that we're doing. That we think that there's something that needs to be revealed, something that needs to be attained, something that needs to be acquired. And we can meditate for that while with some understanding, this intention of, I want to align in this direction. There's something here that's valuable, that's trustworthy, that's important. And then that informs how we show up in the world. It informs how we are, how we relate, how we speak, how we live. And then at some point, if we're sincere, as you all are, you begin to practice what are these mental trainings. And as you practice, the fruit of that is understanding. And it's that understanding that then changes your view and you go all the way back to the beginning of the path, but this time with a different view. Have you ever really gone anywhere? No, you're still at point A, but your understanding, your view of point A is completely different. It's like seeing it for the first time. So this process is iterative. It keeps going and going so that the clarity of the view becomes greater. There's more vividness, there's more detail, there's more freedom, there's more ease. One of the pieces uh, that's coming to my mind right now is um, just in this moment is a, it's a poem from Crowfoot from the Blackfoot Nation. And it's a wonderful, beautiful poem. And he says, what is life? Life is the flash of a firefly at night. It's the breath of a buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow that runs across the tall grass and loses itself in the sunset. So this is the mystery that we're all a part of. And it's also the depth and the richness of what we can experience when we practice, which is what we've all been doing. Bodhidharma, who is said to have brought Buddhism into China, Tibet, He's reputed to have said that through enlightenment, I have not attained a single thing. 
again, pointing at that what is true is already here. It's just that we don't fully recognize the depth of what is here in this moment. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein likes to say, <clears throat> he has a shortcut to Nibbana. You ready? This is it. He says, when you're mindful, when you're with the experience moment to moment as it's unfolding, you naturally see that there's nothing to be clung to. What can you cling to? Everything is a flow. And when you don't cling, notice the mind. It's not agitated. And when the mind is not agitated, it personally attains Nibbana. That's it. So all of this is coming back to the truth of not clinging. But we have to see it so many times, again and again, so that it becomes familiar. It becomes a home base. And that we trust it. It's inherently trustworthy. Another one of my teachers, Minga Rinpoche, has uh, a wonderful set of practices that he calls uh, Nectar of the Simple Yogi. And I love the title of this, of these practices. And actually these are practices that go way back that refer to this Nectar of the Simple Yogi. But the idea, again, is that it's not some far off distant place. It's something immediate, tangible, realizable in this very moment. If, if we show up, we have mindfulness, the awareness, and we have the steadiness, the concentration, to see, to allow nature to reveal itself in all of its depth. Minga Rinpoche has spent about four years wandering in Tibet and Nepal. And he's said to have left without even his toothbrush or his passport. He just left in the middle of the night and headed out. He sent a letter a while back 
And he's actually since emerged. People weren't sure when he was going to show up. He kind of left and he said, I'll be gone for a while. But a while, don't really know. You know, originally it might have been three years, maybe four, maybe five, six or seven. But he sent a letter back. And in this letter, what he described or what he said is that while he's experienced sorrows and joys, where he's experienced cold hunger and thirst, when, when it was hard to come by food and clothing and water, when he was begging for alms, he received only insults. Other times, it was given to him freely without even asking. And it felt like the pleasure of the gods. He said the most important thing through all of this experience is the certainty in the depths of his being. The certainty that the nature of all of this experience is timeless awareness and vast compassion. So again, it's this immediacy. It's so precious, so subtle that we often miss what's right here, right in front of us. In this tradition, there's called uh, what's called the Dhamma Eye, or the vision of knowledge. And it's said that when the Buddha awoke, so we have this Buddha Rupa here on the stage, that when the Buddha had that moment of understanding And he understood this depth, this truth, very subtle, hard to see. That after that experience, he was reluctant to teach. As he said, it's so subtle, it's so hard to grasp. Are there beings out there that will understand if I teach? And as the story goes, he was asked to teach. It said that he was visited by a deva that said, in essence, you must teach this. There are beings with little dust in their eyes. In essence, that that practice, that understanding, that view of what is here, it's possible, it's available to all of us.
notice in this moment, is there anything missing? Is this moment enough? If not, why not? What's missing? So last night, I referenced Kabir. And there's another wonderful poem from Kabir. It's another phrase, another set of words that are simply the pointers to what is already here. And the poem starts, are you looking for me? I'm in the seat next to you. We're sitting shoulder to shoulder. You will not find me in stupas, in shrine rooms, in cathedrals. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Student, what is this mystery? It's the breath inside the breath. So what do we do with this understanding, this view, this wisdom, if we really trust it, if we root this image of the redwood rooted the trunk of the tree embodied and the aliveness of the branches. Well, this understanding naturally shows up in our life. So in a way, the real retreat hasn't begun. This was all the preparation for the real retreat, which is your life. From what you have understood 
how do you live? And we can think about this challenge of practice. We have this tiny practice, perhaps. We, at least we sometimes think of it this way. Oh, my tiny, fragile practice that I need to bring into my big, great life. But I invite you to consider flipping that around. That actually it's your life that becomes your practice. It's not that we have to fit something into something else. Your life is an expression of your practice. So in this moment, can you listen? Can you hear the silence? Can you hear the peace? Can you hear the contentment? The Buddha said that if it were not possible I would not teach you. The fact that it's possible means that I teach. So each of us has to find our way home. We have to find a way back into our own hearts. Back into the depths of our being. So that when we arrive, we know with that steadfast certainty, I am home. This is trustworthy. One of the things that I love about Zen 
is that it's very direct. And for those of you that know Ryokan, a wonderful poet and monk that embodies so much of the understandings of Zen, particularly in the way that he lived. It said that he used to spend his days playing with children or talking with farmers. He lived a very simple life as an expression of the depth of his understanding. And one of his very famous poems goes like this. Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north and you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? There's nothing that you have to do except for trust in your own understanding. And you all have it, I know, because you've shared it so beautifully in the interviews. Your own wisdom, your own understanding. I know early on in my own practice, I used to think about this, one of the root defilements, as they're called, as one of ignorance or delusion. I used to think of it as a thing. It was like this thing that was there, that if I could simply remove it, everything would become clear. But through my practice, what I've understood is that it's not a thing. Delusion is an active process. It's actually something that is constantly spinning so that when we pick something up, we turn it the wrong way round. and we set it back down and we mistake its nature. So that all of this practice is about turning it the right way round. So that it reveals itself naturally. But this can only be done in a moment. 
It's each moment unfolding. The other way to get a sense of this, this is a classic teaching. If I hold the striker like this, then when I release my hand, I lose the striker. And this very posture is one of holding. It's one of grasping. And that there's a fear that I will lose whatever I'm holding. But watch what happens when I turn it the other way around. Now, I can open my hand. There's no loss. There's no fear. There's a simple holding of what was already here. But it's held open-handedly, an open heart and an open mind. So keeping the practice really simple, but not missing how profound this really is, how precious and rare it is to keep showing up, to being mindful, to having that steadiness. So that in your life, there will be times when you will meet experience like this, the closed fist, the fear of loss, the worry that something was gained will be forgotten. But in those moments, because of your practice, because of what you're doing here, wisdom has the opportunity to turn it the right way round. So then you meet that same experience open-handedly and you are responsive to whatever is needed. So there's nothing that you have to prepare, nothing that you have to hang on to. It's already here. So trust your own heart and your own mind. Don't give up your authority. Stay with your direct experience. The Buddha described this as, it's like a mass of rock sitting in the earth unmoved by the wind. And it's when we actually become 
or embody that enlightened activity, that we're already awake, it's already here, closer than our eyelid. So my hope is that these simple words were of some use and that compared to the profound silence that I have broken, that you're able to put them to some good use. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for your kind attention. <clears throat>